Welcome to the May the Smoke Be With You podcast. And now here's your host, Joe Levitt. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the May the Smoke Be With You podcast. Our guest today makes his home in northern Ohio along the shores of Lake Erie where he and his family tend over 300 acres of regenerative farmland. For over 30 years, they have delivered amazing produce from their farm to the table to the tables of some of the world's greatest restaurants and homes just like yours. He is the author of the book, The Chef's Garden. Uh, He's an occasional co-host of the Farming for Health podcast. And today he joins our podcast here on the May the Smoke Be With You podcast. Please welcome in Farmer Lee Jones. How are you? Hey, doing just great. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. It is uh, It is truly my pleasure to do so. Now, uh, I feel like we need to let the audience in on, on a little little background here. So we met each other uh, in person a couple weeks ago uh, at an event here in Nashville. Uh, I was hosting the event. Uh, I was kind of walking up and down the aisles and doing a little bit of audience interaction and uh, ran across this guy who I thought he, he looks like he could be fun to talk to and uh, and kind of called him up out of the audience. And we had a great connection. Uh, and I thought, man, it would be really fantastic to get him here on the podcast. Uh, so we're going to we're going to just have a great conversation, uh, talk a little bit about what you do Um but that was uh, that was a great way to kind of kick off our friendship, I think, there in Nashville. Absolutely. We had a blast. Yeah, it was a great, yeah. great, great event. Uh, and you guys were a great, uh, great part of that all week long, for sure. Um, well, let me let me ask you this. Were you were you born on a farm, Farmer Lee? No, almost. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably one generation removed. Uh, but uh, we were living on a farm when I was born, but okay. uh, they did take me to a hospital. <laughs> so so talk a little bit just about the, the family history and farming and where it all started for you and your family. Yeah, I mean, this you have to talk about the amazing microclimate of Lake Erie. Lake Erie is the shallowest of all the Great Lakes. Consequently, mm-hmm. it's the warmest. European settlers recognized this as a tremendous growing area. In fact, it was huge in wine grapes even before Napa Valley. But those growers recognized this area as a great growing area for vegetables. At one point, as near as we could figure, in 1930, it peaked with over 330 vegetable growers in this county. Wow. From as far as we can find, it's the largest concentration of vegetable farmers of any county in the world. Now, you can go to California, and the counties are 100% agriculture, Yep. but it's owned by 100 farms that each have... 10,000 acres. These were small, what we call truck farmers. It could be five acres to 20 acres, the largest being 100 acres, because that's what one family could manage. Mm. But as the glaciers melted and they moved towards the lake, they ground the soil here very fine. The ground that we're on is all old lake bottom. We're 2.9 miles inland from Lake Erie. And all along the ridge going up even past Cleveland is an amazing growing area. And it grows some of the the most amazing vegetables in the world. What What are your, so your family has been there how long? Well, we've been here 40 years the second time. Okay. Uh, I'm on a property that my father went to work for a fellow by the name of Charles Nichols when he was 14 because he loved farming and he loved vegetable. He went to work for Mr. Nichols. Mr. Nichols was very progressive in growing vegetables. 
it's hard for us today to think about the fact that it wasn't that far into our past that roads and refrigeration had not developed to the point where there was a lot of outside competition. Mm. What we actually had in America is what we're seeking to get back today, which is regional production and distribution. And we're all clamoring to try and get back to that by local theme because it makes sense and it's relevant. But we we evolved away from that. We raced past that. As roads and refrigeration continued to improve, outside competition came from Arizona, from the Carolinas, from Georgia, from Florida, from California, any place that was warmer than Ohio and Michigan and Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And so they had longer growing seasons and they could produce more, more, um, more, more time of the year. And so one by one, those 330 vegetable growers started to go away. Just like I'm sure that all the listeners can remember the family-owned grocery stores that existed in their hometown, wherever they're from. We mm-hmm. had seven or eight we had seven or eight family grocery stores in Huron, Ohio, and it's a population of 7,000 people. Uh, unfortunately, the family grocery stores went away, but so did those small family farms. Mr. Nichols recognized that that competition was coming, where it could happen on a larger scale and the economy of scale could be more efficient. And so he worked cooperatively with about 60 to 65 other growers from this community. And Mr. Nichols invested in hydrocooling, packaging, palletization, distribution, sorting, sizing, grading, boxing, and uh, and he did quite well. He sold to maybe some of the listeners remember the old Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, A&P, Kroger, oh, yeah. yep. uh, Pick and Pay, Fisher Fazio, Big Bear was in a chain near Columbus, and they sold by the truckloads. It was high volume, low margin, and it was very repetitive every day. You started in the spring planting, the first you could get in the ground and you plant it as long as you could into the fall and it could still harvest the crop. And sometimes you chance that on both ends because sometimes when you got the market early or kept had it late, you could get a premium margin for it. My, uh, Mr. Nichols had no sons, no daughters that were interested in taking over the business. And mom and dad bought the farm from Mr. Nichols and they took it over. Um, and they had some good years. But by the time mom and dad took it over, those 65 growers had diminished down to about 12 or 15. Mm-hmm. Dad continued to work with them. But my father, to offset that, continued to expand his acreage and was farming about 1,500 acres of fresh market vegetable. We were shipping vegetables by the semi-load every place east of the Mississippi River. When I was 15 or 16 years old, I worked here on this uh, location and a loading dock, and we would load 10 to 12 semi-loads of produce a day. Wow. Hard for people also to imagine. We're thinking that interest rates are high today. They're moving up. Yep. We've had a historic low run for about the last 15 years. They've been spoiled. Two, yeah, we've been spoiled. Two and a half, three, four percent. Yep. And of course, that has triggered the housing boom. And a lot of folks have been buying market, uh, buying houses, and it's expanded the the market for houses and prices are over asking. If you can mm. imagine, I mean, we never heard of anything like over asking. It was always, if you started at 400,000, you were going to chisel down from there. And now yeah. it's like, well, we had 32 people that are over asking and we're, we're, we're feeling the pain a little bit with them going to 5% and five and a half and talk about them raising it another quarter or half a percent. Well, don't have to go back too far in our history to remember that the interest rates hit 22% Mm. in the late 70s and early 80s. And my dad got caught in that. He was borrowing operating capital. 
to buy seeds and fertilizer and to cover labor until crops started coming in. And when they made money or if they made money at the end of the year, they would reinvest it back in the business and trying to grow the business. It was aggressive and he was pushing it hard. Yeah. And we had a uh, very devastating hailstorm last week. Uh, we were reminded of how vulnerable we can be. We had hail just four miles uh, east of us and about six miles west of us with the threat of tornado. So uh, those things can happen and you there's really nothing you can do about them. But this hail back in the early 80s was so widespread and devastating, it wiped out every crop. Oh. And it was a gut sickening feeling. And if you can imagine 300 acres of cabbage, if you can imagine a head of cabbage and you had a hammer and you were just basically hitting it for about 30 seconds, because that's about all it lasted was 30 seconds. Mm. And it looked like slaw all the way around. Well, mm. of course, then the storm passes, the sun comes back out, the heat comes the next two days, the stench of cabbage <laughs> all over this county was one that every neighbor was complaining about it. And it was a, it was a smell of death for us because ultimately mm. The banks came in and they closed us down. And I stood at 19 years old within 50 feet of right where I'm sitting right now. I can remember my mother's car being auctioned off. Every single wow. piece of equipment we owned, my mother's car, the house was that we grew up in just off about 100 feet to my right was auctioned off. Every single thing uh, that we owned was auctioned. We moved six, uh, six tenths of a mile down the road into another old farmhouse that we owned. We lived there for a year. Uh, it was pretty dilapidated. There were six acres with it. And it went up for sheriff sale a year later. And by the grace of God, uh, with $56,000 that we scraped together from anybody that we could find, grandparents mostly, because we couldn't get any credit at that point, we bought back that six acre house, the six acres and the old farmhouse um, for $56,000. So you can imagine the condition. We yeah. had buckets on the inside of the house to catch the leaks because, and depending upon which way the wind blew, you'd move the buckets to catch the leaks. But uh, I'm not trying to paint a rags or riches story. Uh, God had something else intended for us. And some of us, it takes a bigger two by four than others. And uh, it was a pretty good thump. And so it redirected us and it got us to looking at the way we were farming. Um, the universities, we hear that they're always financially strapped. Who's making the money? The pharmaceutical companies and the chemical companies. So they give the universities grants to do research to help the farmers. Mm. And of course, that research needs to include their chemicals to use on the farms to help the farmers. Yeah. And uh, we had been farming that way. It was the way the universities were teaching us. And that's the way we were farming. And it never really settled well with my father. And it nev never really settled well with us. Well, when we lost the farm, it gave us that opportunity to look back to 100 years ago and look at the way they were farming pre-chemical, pre-synthetic fertilizer without these things. And it really changed our path. Uh, so so that's six acres. You guys, at that point, would you say that, one, uh, two questions, would you have, would you call that initial six acres, was that the first of your regenerative farming? And two, can you explain to the listeners what that is regenerative farming absolutely i think that it was the beginning of the regenerative farming for us if you think about western culture of medicine we get a strep throat we get an ailment we go to the doctor they give us a medicine to patch it up and they make money 
and then you get sick again. And then you go to the doctor and they give you a medicine and patch you up again. Yeah. Western culture medicine is the way that we're farming in America. You get a disease on the plant, here's the chemical you use to get rid of it. Yep. And then the next time it's just like penicillin. They can't use penicillin. They had to keep using more and more penicillin because it become less and less effective and they're using more and more and getting less and less results. Yep. The nutritional level in vegetables from 1920 to 2020 has gone down 50 to 80% and continuing to go down. It's not sustainable. Because of the chemicals. Because of the chemicals, because of genetic modification, where because instead of you, you hear farmers cultivating their farm, which meant that once you planted the rows of corn, hypothetically, that then you would take a tractor that had shovels on it and you would go in between the rows of the corn and eradicate the weeds mechanically. But it was a cost. The model in the United States for agriculture is produce as many tons per acre as you can, do it as efficiently and cheaply as you can, and there might be enough in there to keep you in business and you can keep going. American farmers, and I'm not knocking American farmers, they're amazing, they're yeah. great operators, they're efficient, and they work under the model that is here for them today. In America, we produce, as it relates to our income in America, we produce food cheaper than any other country in the world as it relates to our income, yet we have the highest health care in the world. So the Eastern mm. culture, let's talk about the Eastern culture. What does that mean? It means get the body in balance and defend against the disease in the first place. So... When we lost the farm, we started looking at agricultural books that are 100 to 150 to 200 years old and older. Why is it that with all the technology, with all the resources, with all the brilliant people that we have in America today and throughout the world, that the nutritional levels in the last 100 years have gone down 50 to 80% and continuing to go down, while the occurrences in kidney, liver, heart, cancer disease, attention deficit disorder, autism, childhood obesity, allergies, diabetes, a 3,000% increase while the nutritional levels are going down hmm. at 50 to 80%. It's not sustainable. So if you look back at what those farmers were doing, they were, re, they were harvesting the energy from the sun and rebuilding the soils naturally rather than chemically. I'm sure that you have said it, or you've heard a parent said it, the listeners have said it, or they've heard somebody say it, oh, I need some vitamin D. I'm going to go out and get some sunshine. Yeah. Right? We've said it. We may have not really thought through just how true that is. What's really cool is on the farm today, we have a lab and we'll test the soil, all different plots of the 300 acres. 300 acres is not a lot. Mm. We're surrounded by farms that are farming 4,000, 5,000, 10,000 acres of, of land. And it's a father and two sons that are very efficiently running 5,000 acres. It's mm -hmm. incredible what they do. But we'll test that soil just like as if you and I were to go to the doctor and have blood work drawn. You get a printout that tells you all the mineral in your body and what's high and what's low. You're high in iron, you're low in iron, you're high in calcium, you're low in calcium. It's a complete printout of what's going on in your body. We do the same thing with the soil. And what's really cool, and it's our personal belief, and I'm not trying to cast my aspersions on anybody else. Everybody can believe what they want, and, that, and that's their prerogative. It's our personal belief that God designed a system that's far superior to anything that we can fake out chemically or synthetically. It's about working in harmony with nature rather than trying to outsmart it. If you can imagine, different types of plants will harvest different types of energy from the sun. So based on those deficiencies, it could be clover, alfalfa, buckwheat, rye, sedan grass. We have a 15 species planting that we put in the ground. Out of the 300 acres, to make that even smaller, 50% of that in any one year is planted to, to cover crops to harvest the sun's energy 
And we used to think that in between the rows of what we were growing, whether it was corn, beans, tomatoes, that in between had to be all nice and clean and weed free. We're planting cover crops in between the rows to harvest the energy. It goes down through the roots. It feeds the biology. The plants that we're growing to consume are picking that back up. We have a lab here and we're testing. We're seeing, in some cases, nutritional levels 150 to 300 times higher than the USDA average. It's not rocket science. It's working in harmony with nature rather than trying to outsmart it. This stuff is so damned exciting. I can't wait to get out of bed in the morning. All right. So let, let me, I, I just want to make sure that, that I'm tracking because this is, okay. this is all new to me. So I want to be sure that, that I'm understanding. Yeah. So hopefully the listeners are understanding as well. So you're, you're saying, if I understand you, you've got, you've got a crop, you have rows of crops, but instead of trying to create a weed free, pretty rows you have you you have planted at times or all the time crop you all know, the time gr- now ground cover between them so you are then taking the sun vitamin d in <coughs> essence and putting it into the soil through this ground cover and then those nutrients that are coming from just the ground cover that will really be scraps or made into compost or something i assume are are feeding new minerals and deposits to create a more vibrant and more healthy plant. And, and that's the, the, the plant that you're yielding. Whatever Is that kind of it? In essence, it is. Okay. Um, that, that, it's not just vitamin D. I use the sure. vitamin D example yes. for us to get our mind around the fact yep. that our bodies are a receptacle just like a plant. Yep. We know, we know because it's been folklore or we've heard somebody else say it, that we can go outside and the sunshine, we can harvest vitamin D from that sunshine. And the plants, different based on what we understand about the mineral deficiencies, then we put a, a plan together and manage the the, uh, the cover crop plan so that we can get the balance. In life, just like in the soil, it's about the balance, and it's really critical. When I was a kid, um, we didn't get to travel much. We were on the farm, and we were in a rural area. We always liked to watch a show on Sunday night called Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Yes. Mutual of Omaha, of course, is an insurance company that sponsored this show. And it took us on the farms of lands and places, and we saw parts of the world that we'd never seen, and it was pretty exciting. Now, it was pretty graphic. Yeah. Um, the, when the, the hunts, cougar or the yep. lion tracked down the herd of gazelles, I mean, it it grabbed the weakest or the oldest one, it killed it, and ate it. Yep. And it was graphic. Um, that being said, it's pretty amazing to think that, you know, we understand that an animal goes after the weakest or the oldest or the crippled um, animal. It's survival of the fittest. What's really interesting is, is that insects operate the same way. If you can get the soils in balance and you have healthy plants in those, the insects won't go after that plant because it's too healthy. It's too sweet. They're going to go after a plant that's weakened or out of balance and they're going to attack that. So the best way to be able to avoid chemicals is to be able to get the soils in balance and to have healthy plants in it. We have a saying, healthy soil, healthy vegetables, healthy people, healthy environment. And that's really the crux of what we're trying to do here on the farm. So so regenerative farming is, is rebuilding the soil. And are you reusing it for the same crops over and over? Like I go back to like my elementary, uh, you know, farming 101 that they taught that was crop rotation. You know, that was the, the very simplest of, uh, of farming that they would teach us. And they would be like, they're going to make 
they're going to grow corn and then they're going to rotate so it doesn't deplete the soil. So this, this sounds like it's a little bit more complicated than that. It is. Uh, farmers still rotate, but unfortunately the rotation is basically up here between wheat, beans, and corn. Yeah. And where they had the corn last year, they put the beans this year. And where they had the beans last year, then they put the wheat and they rotate. Um, you can go back to biblical times. Harvest fruit for six years on the seventh year, let the fruit fall to the ground, compost mm. it. Yep. It rebuilds the soil. And on the eighth year, they had a bountiful harvest. Um, so in essence, it's really about resting and rebuilding and resting and rebuilding and resting, just like lifting. You know, you tear the muscles, you rebuild the muscles. Um, but regenerative art, agriculture really is based around trying to work in harmony with nature to capture the energy from the sun. And um, it's just a, it's a great natural way to be able to, instead of using chemical or synthetic fertilizers, you're using nature and working in harmony with nature rather than trying to outsmart it. So at any one point, like what percentage of your 300 acres is, is resting uh, that you're... Fifty percent. Really? It, yeah, it's an unprecedented commitment. We believe in this so strongly yeah. that uh, that it really, really, and we're seeing the results. If listeners get a chance and they're interested in this, we were not part of this documentary, but there's a documentary called "Kiss the Ground." I recommend that everybody watch it. It goes back all the way to the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl and talks about the wind erosion and the erosion. It predicts that we have 60 harvests left if we don't change our ways with monoculture. I believe there's some fear mongering here, but sure. I think that they're really spot on. They have also just now launched Common Ground, which is their next version. Uh, Kiss the Ground was aired and they believe about 10 million people saw it. They believe 100 million will see Common Ground and they're working on the third one. Uh, we're part of one that's just launching now called Food and Country. It really kind of relates and talks about some of the same things. We were out at the Sundance Film Festival to launch that uh, back in February, I believe. And uh, and that's actually airing in Nantucket this weekend. So, so I think that the, it's gaining momentum, the concept, and people are getting their minds around the fact that it's important for the environment. It's important for our sustainability as a society. So you are, you're an outlier in this. You're an outlier in your county for the most part. Uh, you know, you talked about your neighbors who have 5,000 acres and they're, uh, you know, it's a three-man operation, a dad and two sons. And, and yeah. you know, yeah. you praise their efficiency, but they're doing it the, the way the colleges and chemical companies want you to do it. Um, and they probably think you're crazy at some level looking at your field and seeing half of it resting because they, they can't afford to do that. They can't afford to let half their their ground rest and heal and and regenerate because they have to keep five thousand acres going at all times. It, it's it's a rat race. Uh, I think that if the model were to change, I think that they would be willing to do it. These people are smart. They're hardworking. Change is difficult for any of us. Yeah. And usually the time that we change is when we're forced to. And some of these farms are in the, in the family three generations. The land's paid for. They're efficient. They're good operators. They don't get on the ground too wet. They don't get on it. They get on it exactly at the right time. They do things almost perfect. Yeah. I mean, they are textbook good. These guys are good growers around here and good people. Yeah. What, what makes them 
you know, you said change is hard. There's seen an example of a successful farm because this, your operation isn't you and your brother and a hired hand. Like you've got a pretty good sized team there, right? That you're, you're supporting. And so, you know, your model, I guess maybe is, is so different. You're not, you're not selling it at a commodity level. You're not selling to, you know, the, the grain house, you know, you're, you're selling direct to consumer, direct to restaurant, those kind of things. But what do you think needs to change for them to, to take that risk and change and not just your neighbors, but farmers just in general? Well, we don't, um, the team that's here is like family to us. There's 187 full-time people. Wow. Uh, we need them and they need us. We're, we're a team and we try and take care of each other. And we fought through COVID together and we kept the farm going. You don't furlough a farm and we wanted our, our team here. Uh, but uh, I think what it takes is to demand. I believe that supply and demand dictates everything. Uh, I think uh, that it's, it's the worm is turning. Common ground, the folks have put together Kiss the Ground and Common Ground are fearful that when this common ground goes out, that it's going to create such a demand and that supply is not going to be there to fulfill it. When farms see that there's an alternative, that they can get a higher margin, these margins are razor thin for these folks. If they yeah. hiccup, if they, if they make one mistake, that can cost them for the year. And uh, so I think that supply and demand dictates everything. I believe that. And I think that, that, that the demand is going to continue to increase and farmers will figure out how to supply that demand if it exists. Uh, ours is definitely not a commodity product. Uh, we don't wish to be in the commodity market. We couldn't survive in the commodity market. We, for the last 40, when we lost the farm, we started back over really focused on the absolute top end of the market. We went from a high volume, low margin situation to a low volume, high margin situation where we would do all the crazy stuff that nobody else would do. We were growing things that were in such low volumes that nobody would even put the seed in a planter because it would, mm. it, there's not, it, you know, it's not efficient. If you were to sit down and write the most inefficient farm that you could think of, <laughs> there are 7,000 SKUs on 150 acres with nearly 200 people on it. In some cases, we, the maximum we may plant would be a 300 foot row of one product. Uh, it's, a, it's basically, it's an inefficient system, but basically we took items that, you know, it's just like somebody saying, well, can your business scale? Uh, if it's not doing at least 500 million, we're not interested, it's not enough volume. And I think that the same thing could be said about particular items that we grow. They're so low volume that nobody wants to try and do them on a bigger scale because the demand isn't there. Our goal over the last 40 years has been to create uh, more volume within products that didn't necessarily have the competition. Um, so 40 years, we have been focused on shipping direct from our farm to Ritz-Carlton's Four Seasons, country clubs, uh, cruise ships any place high in Disney, any place high end that wanted the best quality that was humanly possible, picked by hand, washed, cleaned, sorted, counted, sized, and shipped. It's picked today and they're using it on a plate tomorrow in New York City or Las Vegas or California. It's artisan production. Um, but if you can imagine 
100% of our revenue was coming from restaurants and 40% of the volume went away literally overnight. Yeah. And we were in an oh shit moment. Like, here we go again. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so we pivoted to a nationwide home delivery where individuals who were afraid to go to a grocery store like us, because, you know, we were nervous. We were scared about how we were going to pick this COVID up. And yeah, nobody knew. Grocery store. Yep. Yeah. So we opened an open air farm market on the farm and we launched a nationwide home delivery so people could order. And if somebody was doing particularly well, and they knew that others weren't, they may buy, uh, Rachel Ray was going on and buying a hundred different boxes and shipping them to people around the country as a gift because she could afford to do it. And she was trying to help out in any way she could. Yeah. You know, last year, uh, at the same event that you and I met at, I was, uh, I've, I've met your brother a few times, uh, Bob, and he was, he was at the event last year and we had a guy named Will Gadara and Will is, uh, has a book that if you love hospitality, love, uh, you need to read, it's called unreasonable hospitality, but Will, uh, ran 11 Madison park, which at one point was the number one restaurant in the world. And Bob said, Hey, I'd I'd love to say hello to Will, uh, because he uses our stuff or has used our stuff. So what was that process like? Uh, getting to those restaurants to get to the Four Seasons, the Ritzes, uh, the you know the the high end restaurants at Disney to get to Eleven Madison Park to get these chefs calling the chefs garden, that didn't happen overnight. So what was that process like? We're actually going into Eleven Madison Park uh, July I think fifteenth, and we're doing a special VIP event. Oh, and uh, I'm going to go in, and they've invited and capped it at sixty people. And it's all going to be a farm to table and they're going to prepare a product. It's basically like a walk through the garden for that particular day. And we're going to work in conjunction with them and do a special event um, with 11 Madison Park. They've been great partners and we're very grateful. And of course, they came out of COVID and went completely vegetarian. And, you know, I'm a meat eater. I like my meat. I like my steaks. I like my burgers. Uh, I went in and ate. And I'll tell you right up front, I did not miss the meat. Yeah. And I was so emotionally moved by how they were able to really accentuate and bring the full flavors of vegetables to the forefront that it, I literally cried. It was that wow. emotionally powerful. The flavors uh, were just that great. Um, well, we, when we lost the farm, we started back at farmer's markets because it was instant cash. If you knew anything about farmers, particularly post-depression, you never threw anything away. And at the sheriff's sale, I'm standing there with my mother and father, my brother and sister, all of our neighbors, all of our competitors, everybody that was there to celebrate our failure. Wow. And there was some old trucks that they couldn't get a bid on them. They had over a million miles on them. And I can remember the auctioneer saying, somebody give me $50 for this thing. It's worth that for scrap. Dead silent. I mean, they were rough. And... We drug them down to the six acres and we patched them up. And of course they charge up for license plates based on the weight of the vehicle. And these were big old heavy trucks <laughs> and the little stickers you have to buy new every year. Well, it was about five, 600 bucks per truck for these three trucks. Well, we didn't have the cash to buy the stickers, but we had plenty of Erie County soil. And I can remember we would leave at two thirty on Saturday mornings to go out to the farmer's markets. We had those three trucks. Uh, my grandmother and aunt were selling out of the back of a Ford Fairmont. We had a borrowed pickup truck, and I can't remember what the six. We were going to five or six different locations on Saturday 
but our job on Saturday morning, Bob's wife, who was 11 when she started to work for us, the next door neighbor, <laughs> she'd get a five-gallon bucket, a shovel full of dirt, and a little water and make the most beautiful Erie County mud you can imagine. And she was down on one knee with a flashlight in one hand and a paintbrush in the other, painting license plates with mud. And she'd say, Farmer Jones, is that enough? Now put a little bit more on there. Um, and I'm not saying that bragging. We, we try and follow the law. Uh, we believe in the law of the land. But we were the reality was we were in survival mode. Yes. And we met a chef there. And we didn't know a damn thing about chefs. And this woman had a chef jacket on and all things. She was looking for a zucchini that was the size of your pinky with a blossom on it about the same length as the zucchini. And it came home and we would do what we call sharing war stories after we got back on Saturday, dog tired. We were always first there and last to leave. And uh, then we'd talk about the day and our adventures with the city folks. And, you know, I shared that this lady with a white jacket came and she called herself a chef and she wanted a zucchini bloom. Now, my dad had sold truckloads of zucchini. He was an expert zucchini grower. They were about seven and a half to eight inches long. They were about two and a half inches around. You put 20 pounds in a carton. We loaded truckload after truckload of zucchini squash. And here was this lady looking for him the size of a pinky with a balloon on it. And my dad said, this lady won't even remember the conversation next week. He told CNN Business Unusual this story. And uh, she did remember it. And she came back and I told dad, I said, dad, this lady's really serious about this. And my father said on CNN, he goes, usually we didn't have conversations more than once. So I was surprised to hear Lee tell me about this foolish squash thing again. So I ended up taking him in for her to the specs. And I didn't put him in the back of the truck. I had him in the side of the truck. And she came and I kind of sheepishly brought them out and showed him. Well, she starts screaming like somebody had just stolen her purse. Well, all of a sudden, all the other farmers come running over there. Here I am. 22, 23 years old, beat, red, embarrassed, all the farmers heckling me because don't I know when to pick a zucchini? What's the matter with you picking at this size? Yeah. Don't you know the zucchini? You know, and she's like, oh my God, I haven't seen anything like this since I've been in France. Do you realize what you have? And then she introduced me to a chef, another chef. But she recognized um, that there was a demand. She felt that there'd be a demand for product grown without chemical, grown for the quality, grown for the integrity in unique and specialty ways. We, at the end of that season, said, look, can we buy an hour of your time? She wouldn't, she wouldn't take any money for her time, but we got in our old pickup. We drove into Cleveland. She was a chef for a brokerage firm, Prescott Ball and Turbine in Cleveland at the time. Kind of a cushy job. If they had uh, investors in, she'd cook for them. Yep. The other days, if there were no investors, she'd research. She was brilliant. She was an amazing, great mentor. And we said, we want to come in. And we went in this big, huge, intimidating Looked like a law office with a long table, conference table. That, that conference table was spread with books. And she had them earmarked with ideas. And we were in there for wow. three hours taking notes. And she taught us. And we wouldn't let go. We grabbed around both of her ankles and said, teach us. And that was really the beginning. And then she introduced us to another chef and another chef. And we met Jean-Louis Paladin at the Watergate Hotel in D.C. And he introduced us to all the French chefs. And the Ritz-Carlton's were steeped with French chefs. Yep. And so... You know, there's story after story after story. And 40 years later, you know, it's just been we had uh, four pages in The New York Times. A woman came out and did a beautiful piece. And that would have been in 2000. And um, we had ABC World News. And some of those things just sort of 
they did, I don't want to say that we, they all just fell together. We worked at those to get them into, to get their attention, to say, hey, there's, there's life outside of New York City. Come to Ohio and see what's going on here. And, and those, those things help. But really, word of mouth from chefs who said, man, this stuff is great. A chef in Ritz-Carlton had a big event, and they flew 12 Ritz-Carlton chefs from other locations in to help them with this event, to pull it off in true Ritz-Carlton fashion. Our boxes were unmarked. Our number, you couldn't even find us in the phone book. And uh, this stuff comes in, and all these other chefs from other Ritz-Carlton, Ritz Laguna Niguel, Ritz Naples, Ritz Amelia, Ritz uh, DC, Ritz Atlanta, two Ritz Buckhead. All these chefs are hitting the chef up like, dude, where are you getting this stuff? Yeah. And he's like, no, 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 no. You go get your own farmer. He doesn't have enough for y'all. So they did the event. They pulled the event off. Uh, after the event, they all took him out. They had a few too many by design. And he ponies up the phone number. And the next thing you know, we're supplying these chefs all over. And we had the product to back it up. But, uh, you know, that helped. And so it's just it's really been organic. And those chefs have been great mentors to us and have really given us a path to follow. Yeah. And, and, you know, so, you know, the stroke of kind of Providence, this, you know, white jacketed chef shows up at the farmer's market and asks for something ridiculous two weeks in a row and, and you, you provide it. Uh, and then, you know, it's given to somebody else. And then, you know, chefs are, are migratory. They, they move around. It's, it's rare That's for right. a chef to just kind of land at the Ritz Amelia Island and stay there for, for 30 years. They might be there for eight years and then they might go to another Ritz or another restaurant. And so for four or two years. Yeah, I mean, And, and then there's always sous chefs working underneath this chef at this restaurant. And so they're, yeah. they're gleaning this. And so it was, yeah, I could see this kind of like organic, thing happening for you that's right now it's just spread and somehow 11 madison park hears about it and they're using it and and everything i i, I almost wonder years a few years back um for our christmas party here we had 1600 folks it was at the music city center in nashville uh and and he sourced uh 1600 romanesco and it feels like that's probably something that he would have to go to you for, because I don't know of, I don't think Romanesco's grown a ton, uh, because it's a very unique plant, yes. you know, or, or crop. Um, and we love Romanesco. And yeah. we do a purple cauliflower. We do a baby white cauliflower. We do four or five different varieties. But one, we none of us ever accomplish anything by ourselves. The grace of God. Uh, we believe has guided our path mm. and, and chefs are shortly behind them. <laughs> and uh, we've had so much help from them and we wouldn't, we wouldn't exist if it weren't for those chefs that had recognized that we were really passionate about surviving in agriculture. But it really kind of launched us again when COVID hit into another pivot. We, the three most important things that chefs asked were they wanted flavor, flavor, and flavor. We, suspected that as trying to achieve flavor naturally um, that we were probably moving the nutritional levels up. We hired a doctor from the Mayo Clinic. We moved her and her family here. She's on staff full time. Wow. Uh, we have a lab here with three scientists. This is not voodoo. This is not GMO. We don't believe in GMO. This is about really going back to nature, but using technology today to be able to measure results. My dad had a saying that we have to continue to make mistakes at a faster rate than the competition. He also said, you do mistakes well. 
you <laughs> damn well better learn from them. Uh, so, you know, there's just, there's so many lessons for us there. Complacency is the beginning of the end. You can be on the right set of tracks and still get run over if you're not moving fast enough. I mean, this guy was a charge guy. I had the privilege of working with my father, Bob Jones, for 40 years. He called me and said, "We, you know, we got to start over. I need you to leave school. I'm the oldest in the family. I left school. I came back, helped get my sister and brother through college. I'm the dummy on the farm. Uh, and we went to work. And when, you know, those first chefs, my dad, you remember the old carousel projectors? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that uh, slides in them. Yep. I would go. He said, we, had, we were at farmer's markets. We're going to five or six farmer's markets. The chefs were 2% of the business and 80% of the aggravation. We had a family vote at a card table in the barn. And my dad said, look, we're jack of all and master of none. We're either going to do farmer's markets or we're going to do chefs. And the chefs were 2% of the business. And we went all the way around the card table. I voted first. I said, well, look, we're five years into the farmer's markets. We're building up some trade. You know, the chefs are highly demanding and it's only 2% of our business. If we've got to do one or the other, I vote to go with the farmer's markets. We went all the way around the table. My sister and my brother and my mother voted, and everybody voted the same with me. We got to my dad. Now, I told you this was a cardboard card table. I can still picture it. And there were some glasses of water on the cardboard table. It was a nice family meeting. And all of a sudden, he took a fist, and he slammed it down on the cardboard table. You can imagine the trajectory of those glasses. They went flying, filled with water. He said, absolutely not. There's more potential with the chefs. What they're demanding and what they're looking for is the direction this country needs to go, and it's the direction this family needs to go. My vote counts for five. Yours only counts for one. You're going to get out there. You're going to find every chef you can find, and you're going to find out what they want us to grow, and your brother and I are going to stay back at home and figure out how to grow it. Now this discussion is over. Now you got work to do. Now go get after it. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a family discussion like that, but that was exactly the way that conversation went, and that's what we did. Wow. So I had a carousel camera. With, my dad was a great photographer, and we had pictures of vegetables. Imagine that. When we go on vacations, we wouldn't go to the places that you would suspect. We would go to Florida, and we would go touring on farms to look at what other farms were doing to learn from them. And so that, uh, we had lots of pictures of vegetables, our own vegetables, and I would take an extension cord, in a carousel, and if I could get that chef to stop for a minute, I'd plug it, plug it into the wall, and I'd hold the carousel under my arm and find a wall and just take, push the picture. Yeah, I'd be interested in that. Yep, yep. Nope, I wouldn't be. Yep, I could use some eggplant. Yep, yep. Okay, great. We'll have it for you. And I'd go. I slept this thing around, find parking. It was like when you still had the telephone booths. Yeah. You know, there was no cell phones. I mean, it was it was work. I was on the on the path beating it to try and build that momentum and of course you know it didn't take us long to recognize we needed to segment that market a little more fine i mean i went in any place from a subway to the fanciest place i could i I wasn't focused enough on market segmentation early on and of course we got better at that and we really try and uh, fine-tune that market segmentation put all of our energy and effort into the right segment uh i i think you're uh, I love these stories. You, you guys are a, you guys are a, a movie. Uh, it's, it's just, <laughs> it's just great. I, I, I love it. Um, what were some of your, I know we're out of time. No, we're, 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 we're not. If you're out of time, we, we can, no, we can stop, no. but I don't want to stop. Wanna, sometimes I get accused of rambling on too long. No, I got stories. I mean, this has been, 
it's been such a journey. It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. And wow, what a ride. Yeah, that, it's been such a privilege. You know, we lost dad August 4th, 2020, but mm. I wouldn't have traded those 40 years of getting to work with him for if somebody would have said, hey, you could have any job you want. and You could set any amount of pay for yourself that you wanted. I wouldn't have traded it. It was just it was just absolutely a, an amazing journey. Hard. Yeah. Bumpy. Difficult. Yeah. No, no doubt. You, you have not, you've not sugarcoated and made it sound like it was glamorous. Uh, your, your dad's, um, just wisdom to, to stop in that moment and say, you know, we could, we could just be another farmer's market farm and and we could be okay, but this is, this is different and we can make a mark and do something different. Uh, it was pretty, pretty amazing. What were some of your earliest memories just as a, as a child of what was food like for you guys? Um, obviously your, your farm, you're raising vegetables, but like, what was, what was a Sunday, Sunday evening meal before mutual of Omaha? What was that like for, for you guys? My mother was a terrible cook. <laughs> uh, my mom and dad met in the seventh grade. Mom wouldn't let dad take her out to the 11th grade. They both graduated from Huron in 1959. I had some of the same teachers that they did because I graduated in Huron from 79. They were married by the time they were 19 and 20. Mm -hmm. uh, they headed down to Ohio State. Uh, they had me a year later. And my mother comes up to me every once in a while and grabs me by the arms and says, I'm sorry you turned out the way you did. We were an experiment. We had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> she is a terrible cook. So TV dinners, uh, frozen okay. turkey bags that were sealed in the bag with the turkey and the gravy. And she would put toast and then heat those up in boiling water and put them over. I can remember those. I can remember chocolate pudding for breakfast. I mean, <laughs> my dad had hamburgers for dinner. Now, that being said, that are some of my childhood memories. But my grandmother, who came from a different generation, who came through the Great Depression, who knew how to cook. She, she uh, always cooked all day long on Wednesday. And there were 14 of us grandchildren that lived within eight miles of each other. And I had three grandparents uh, within eight miles of me for 36 years of my life. Great, mm. great wow. privilege. Um, but she would do that cooking all day to bribe the grandkids to come for uh, dinner on Wednesday night before Bible study. With dinner her? was at six. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, you didn't great. dare come for dinner and then say, well, I got to go. If you came for dinner, you were loading in the car or two cars, and we were going to Bible study. You did not make that mistake more than one. Grandma always tried to have a big dinner after church on Sunday. My mom tells about being, that my grandmother would be so mad at my grandfather because he would just inadvertently invite 10 or 12 more people to come and expect that she was going to happen. But she said nobody ever went hungry. There was always good food. We canned and we, we froze corn off the cob in season. And the best food memories for us as kids were at my grandmother's that was on my mother's side. Um, but they were not. And I, my mother knows it and she will admit it to this day. She was a lousy cook and she's not gotten any better. <laughs> I'm sorry, mom. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, uh, you know, obviously we're, we're, a, we're a barbecue, uh, podcast. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, are you, um, do, do you, and you said you're a meat eater, so you, you enjoy, enjoy meats. Uh, do you, do you cook much outside? Do you guys do any, any live fire cooking, any smoking, grilling, anything like that? Well, as you know, we had a pretty special uh, guest on the farm 
oh gosh, I guess it's been three weeks ago, David yeah. Olson. Yes. Who From Live is Fire Republic. the rock star at Live, yeah, Live Fire Republic. Yeah. I mean, this guy, there were people that flew from Myrtle Beach to come in yeah. to experience his cuisine at the farm. And we were honored to have him on the farm. We've been friends for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And uh, my goodness, I mean, I think that it's kind of a lost art in a lot of ways. It's so primitive in many ways, and it's sort of carnal and, you know, cooking with fire. I'll tell you, vegetables, we tend to think in meat, in terms of meat with live fire, but golly, you could put, even in the fall, uh, fall squash, throw them right in the coals, this stuff will be blackened on the outside where you think it couldn't possibly be eaten. You bust that open and the steam, it's piping hot, throw a little butter and a little brown sugar in, eat a butternut squash like that or a spaghetti squash, there's nothing better. But uh, I haven't had to do much cooking. I can cook. I am known at home as the king of leftovers uh, because I hate to waste things. And so I'm always grabbing leftovers. I had leftover spaghetti for lunch today. And this is my... Uh, I think this is my third or fourth round on it. Mary's not eating any meat right now. It's regenerative. So, you know, it's, it's just, it's on, it's on, uh, it's on brand for you. That's right. That's right. Um, I don't own another pair of pants. Uh, you know, the uh, overalls that you, uh, you surprised me with at uh, Entree Leadership. Uh, yeah. So for pretty the, amazing for those, you know, we'll have this on, on YouTube, uh, on our YouTube channel. Uh, so you'll be able to see, uh, farmer Lee. Uh, but for those of you that can't, he has, you have a uniform, uh, and I would love to hear kind of the, the Genesis and origin and, and the why behind it, but it is a, it's, yeah. it's Carhartt overalls, uh, kind of a short sleeve button down white shirt and a red bow tie and a chef's garden hat. Um, and uh, so at this event, he was wearing that day one because he wears it every day. Uh, and then I talked to him. And on the last day of the event, uh, I came out wearing uh, a duplicate of the outfit. And we have a picture. I'll post that uh, as well, which was which was a lot I'll of fun. Tell but, you, I think you looked way more handsome than I did. And you, you rocked that pretty good. Uh, but uh, what what uh, what made you start doing this? What t Tell us about the, the genesis of this. Yeah, um, I do have a registered trademark with the U.S. Attorney General's office. I do not own another pair of pants. I tend to not think of it as a uniform uh, as much as I do a way of life. Um, there's an old farm saying that you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Now, a lot of younger folks are going to be, what the heck is either one of those? Um, the point was, is on the farm, you never wasted anything. And the ears were really something that were not edible. So you looked for, you didn't waste anything. So you could take the ears, dry those down, sew them together, and you could make a pouch out of it. But on its best day, it would never be a silk purse. Mm. So it's one of those farm sayings that um, I guess, I don't know, I've outlived its usefulness in that farm saying. But um, one of the few books, unfortunately, that I read in high school was The Grapes of Wrath. It talks about the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl, many family farms displaced and lost everything. Uh, if you get a chance on a rainy day and you want to stay in your PJs and watch an old black and white uh, Henry Fonda is about 21 years old, and he plays the main character in The Grapes of Wrath. You mm -hmm. can still get it. It's about three hours long. But the book is amazing. It was by John Steinbeck. Yep. And it talks about the plight. And in many cases, three generations are loaded on an old farm truck with the family dog and the cow and the furniture and anything, an old plow, anything they could get on there to go and start over. They were desperate. They were broke. They had lost their farms. The banks had taken those over. The Great Depression had hit. 
and the Dust Bowl had hit and uh, large operations would take advantage. They knew there were hundreds of thousands of families that just wanted to make a living and earn money to make a, to buy a meal. So orange groves or peach groves or whatever needed harvesting, they would put the word out. And there would literally be hundreds of thousands of these families that would show up. In some cases, they're out of gas and they're pushing the vehicles into the camp. Well, it was a dollar and a half to stay at the camp. And it was another 50 cents if you wanted a hot meal and a shower. And they made 250 for the day. And they almost ended up owing at the end of the day. And they were really taken advantage of. But they mm -hmm. wanted to work and earn a living and to be able to provide for themselves. Despite their hardships, despite how broke they were, despite everything, there's a scene on a Saturday night. Their overalls are worn, their overalls are torn, but they're clean. And they had white shirts on and they put bow ties on and they had a square dance. And despite all the hardship, they maintained their, their integrity and their dignity and their pride. And they went on, they went on with life. And little did I know that you know, how much that book resonated with me at 17 years old that just in three to four years later, we'd be experiencing the very same thing in modern day times. And I thought it was, I couldn't even comprehend that it would happen mm -hmm. in today's world in the late 70s and early 80s. And I, I wanted it to represent everybody that's ever had a farm and lost one, everybody that ever remember going to a grandparent's farm and dreamed of those good times and anybody that has a small family farm and trying to do it the right way. I can't ever put a three-piece suit on and look as handsome as some of those folks uh, that show up in the big city. I go to New York City and there are guys in tuxedos and women in beautiful evening gowns and I walk in in a pair of overalls and a white shirt and bow tie. And I'm sure I'm providing some cheap entertainment for some of those, but I really don't care. But I also have guys that will come up and kind of give me a little elbow and say, gosh, you look comfortable in those. I wish I could pull that off. <laughs> I am sure when I go to those events, nobody is ever going to say, no, gee, there's the smartest guy in the room. But I do like to hear him say, there's the most passionate guy in the room. And I, uh, I've lived my life that way and had great friends because they recognized my passion for trying to stay on the farm and do it the right way. We're never, our goal's never been to be big, it's to be good, to be the best we could be as individuals and collectively as a, as a team here on the farm. So that's what it represents. And I literally, I got invited to a pool party last summer. I took my oldest pair that were pretty worn and torn themselves and I cut them off just above the knee and, and I went to the pool party. But um, I literally don't own another pair of pants. If you were to look in my closet, there's 16 pairs there. There's one in the dirty clothes basket, and there's 16 pairs, and I've got one on. I've got 18 shirts, 18 red bow ties, and 18 pairs of overalls. All you wanted to know about overalls and more. I am looking for a contract from Carhartt. So if anybody's listening out there, uh, Carhartt, give me a call. Yeah, I, I would I would say that uh, I, I love that story. I do love your passion. Uh, I think there was a little emotion as you were kind of sharing that. Uh, I saw it, I heard it. Um, you know, you are, you are so passionate about this. Do you, do you have a fear that, that farming as, as we know it is, 
are you as doom and gloom and and scared that farming is is going to die? Absolutely not. I've never been more excited and more enthused and encouraged about the future than I have today. That's great. It's so exciting to see. I think IT is going to play a huge role in that. I think it's kind of going in two different places, but I think that uh, monoculture is going to rethink how they're how they're feeding the plant um, and looking at regenerative agriculture. It can be scaled, but I think that there's a, such a huge cottage industry of small family farms. There are more small family farms today than in the history of the United States. Wow. During COVID, there were more gardens planted than during the Victory Garden days after World War II. I believe that we have to look for those kernels of corn that, that uh, look, it was a difficult time for all of us during COVID and we all lost loved ones during yeah. it. But out of the ashes comes some new and exciting things. And, you know, kids like to emulate their parents and those parents were out planting a garden and the kids wanted to help. And Joey now was involved in planting that carrot and he got to pull the carrot out. And he's more likely to eat that carrot if he helped grow it. And I hope that one of the good things out of COVID is, is that we've created a whole new world of gardeners out there that are going to, there's something, there's therapeutic and it's, it's physically satiating, but it's also mentally satiating to be able to, to grow your food and to know what you put on it and what you didn't put on it and mm. to be able to eat that. Uh, getting to those farmers markets and building those connections and reconnecting with where our food sources are coming from. We allow to disconnect in this, in the United States and we've lost our way with where our food was coming from, how it was being grown. The preservatives are killing us. Yes. And, uh, but no, I'm really excited about the future for agriculture. Uh, no, it's not doom and gloom, Good. but it's urgent. There's a sense of urgency. There needs to be a sense of urgency with all of us that how this stuff is grown and who we're supporting, we support by where we vote with our dollars. And this, this uh, kiss the ground, watch it. I mean, there's a sense of urgency. They predict 60 harvests left. We have to change our ways on this, but I am hopeful and optimistic more so than ever before. That's great. You mentioned uh, one of the questions I had for you was uh, some some vegetables that people might not think about grilling, but that they should, that maybe changes the flavor, uh, is maybe something that they've never thought to grill. Uh, you mentioned throwing a, a, a squash into the fire, blackening it up. Uh, getting it nice and soft and then just cracking it open and, and eating that. Uh, what are some other things that, that I should be cooking on my grill or, or maybe even smoking a vegetable? I don't know. Yeah, I think that the list is shorter on what you shouldn't be cooking on the grill. <laughs> um, I, of course, I'm going to think seasonally. I mean, yeah. we're just winding down on asparagus season. We do purple and white and green and pink asparagus. Pink? Smather that stuff, yeah. Oh. Smather, smather that in olive oil and season it to your liking and grill it and yep. blacken it. And wow, is it amazing. Agreed. But then now the asparagus is emerging out and we're harvesting all types of different baby squash, baby zucchini and yellow crooknecks and Peter Pan and patty pans. And you throw those on same olive oil application. Uh, they're just unbelievable. Kohlrabi, even cabbages are amazing on the grill. Cut those things down and throw them on there. I mean, it's just, I think that you get a little bit more crunch and the, the blackening um, texture and the flavors and the smokiness of the vegetable. I think people that have trouble with vegetable might really be turned on by the vegetables, cook them in a, cooking them in a different way. We need to get more vegetables into our diet. 
Uh, it's so critical. Eat the rainbow, which means get as much color as possible into the diet. And when we can, don't overcook it. If you can eat it raw, in many cases, you're going to get a higher percentage of the nutritional level, but also not overcooking. I look at some of those amazing meals that my grandmother cooked all day, and they were really good, but she threw enough ham fat and ham hock in them that they were good. But my guess is most of the nutrition was zapped out of them. But yeah, they those... were all healthy. They don't have the issues that we do today. They worked harder than we did. Yes, that that's true. Uh, th- those are some great, great suggestions. Um, you know, Peaches we... are great on the grill. Yes. Peaches yeah. are fantastic on the grill. Cantaloupes are good on the grill. No, I've never, never done that. Yeah. Uh, how, how can folks find you? You've got a great Instagram, Farmer Lee Jones. I, I, I love the videos that you do when you're in the garden. Thanks. Last last Thanks. week was, uh, I saw one, the, the violas, is that what they were? The little edible flowers. Yeah. And if you want to just see a guy, you've heard his passion here today uh, or seen his passion. Like this guy talking about what's in harvest, man, it makes me want to just go get a plate full of flowers and just start munching on them and tasting what's different. Um, but just tell people how, how they should follow along and, uh, and find out more about you if they, if they want some more information. Yeah, absolutely. They can go to farmerjonesfarm.com. Uh, no spaces in between, just farmerjonesfarm.com. And you can go directly on there. You can create your own box. We curate some boxes. There's, some of them are chefs, friends of ours from around the country that curate those boxes. One that's on there right now from Bradley Kilgore. Uh, there's a chef, Hong that's coming up, a very, very good friend of ours out of New York City that's curated a box. Uh, Jamie Simpson, our chef here at the Culinary Vegetable Institute, um, curating boxes with recipes and how-tos, and uh, and as well, put those boxes together and curate it yourself and put together what you want in the box. You want a gift to Aunt Matilda that's in Tampa, and she has three of everything, and it's like, what the hell do you get her? She's got everything. Yeah. She's got three of everything. Get her a subscription to a box of vegetables that says, I care about your health and well-being, and we want you around for another 30 years. Or corporate. You've got a company. You work with clients. You want to buy them something. We could put messaging from you folks in that box and do the messaging and put a box out and send it at the holidays or at any time or for birthdays. Um, so you can, if you're in Ohio and you want to come, we get folks that start average travel distance is about 90 minutes to come on Saturday morning here to the market. The people that are coming are either trying to stay well or get well. You can do Airbnb at the Culinary Vegetable Institute. Oh, really? And come and do an overnight stay. Um, And that's exciting. We can create a a honeybee experience for you or a cooking experience. We can curate your stay to customize that to whatever you want. You want to do a, a, we just did a, my ninth grade Spanish teacher and her husband celebrated their 60th anniversary at the Culinary Vegetable Institute Saturday with a hundred of their closest friends. Oh, wow. It was really special to be there. I snuck out of the farm market a little early to go over and, and toast a glass of champagne with my ninth grade Spanish teacher <laughs> who comes to the farm market with her husband every Saturday here. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, um, you know, we can't leave any uh, episode uh, without asking a few questions questions. Uh, no leaf unturned. No leaf unturned. That's right. Uh, you know, we're may the smoke be with you. We're a combination of uh, a barbecue and Star Wars. And so we just always ask people if, if they're, uh, if they're a fan of, of Star Wars, have you, have you seen the movies there, chef or uh, a farmer? You know what? I have never watched Star Wars. That didn't surprise me. Uh, because I, I don't think you have time for that. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I feel like you're, you know, you, you are, you're working, uh, you work a full day, you do a podcast with a guy, you're out, you're doing events, you're doing these things. And, and back when Star Wars was happening, you guys were, were trying to hold on to a farm. Uh, you guys were busy. Um, so we're it does still trying to hold on to a farm. Well, I, <laughs> I think you're doing a great job. Uh, the farm that I'm sitting at tonight is a farm that we lost 40 years ago. In the middle of COVID, the neighbor says we're retiring. We want to buy the farm back. Hmm. So here I am sitting on the farm that we lost 40 years ago and we bought it back. So we're doing the pod- podcast tonight from, from that farm. It took a long time. I privately drove by it every single day because we started over right across the road and privately thought someday. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Kind of like uh, Abraham walking in the desert for forty years, uh, but here we are. So, well, your work is. So, been what re- do you got? Like rapid fire questions? Well, they they were kind of Star Wars themed, so we kind of we kind of yeah. just oh. we kind of just out on those. So it's sorry. You know what? It's a series that used to run, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's yeah, not on now. No, it's it, just, now it's all reruns. Yeah, it was. It I was mean, a Waltons. It was a movie. You know, the Waltons and Bonanza and uh, you know, Gunsmoke. Those were all mine. Yeah, your favorite know. kill on Mutual of Omaha. Which was your favorite kill? Uh, you know, <laughs> let's. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, it's when they let the animal go and they ate a plant. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> so good. Well, this. Uh, this has been amazing. I, I really do appreciate it. I am I'm super thankful that that our paths uh, crossed. Um, you can uh, you can pick up a copy of his book there, um, The Chef's Garden. Uh, tell a little Amazon. bit about it. It's a it's a huge book. That's that's big. So what is that? Recipes? Is it the story? What what is that? Yes, uh, all of the above. It's not one you're going to put in your backpack and take to the farmer's market, but I guarantee if you go to the farmer's market and try something new that you're a little bit intimidated by, then you can come back and we'll probably show you how to be able to prepare it. But it really, uh, it's, people say, how long did it take us to do the book? And Chef Jamie and the team will say two and a half years and I'll say 40 years of mistakes and trials and yeah. tribulations and hopefully a couple successes. But uh, in the book, which has been out now three years, um, it shows a picture of this farm and it talks about losing it and the farm had not been recaptured back. And, uh, there's a picture of the farm and telling the story of losing it. So that chapter had not, we needed one more chapter in there to complete the full story, but, uh, we're not done yet. We'll no, do it in the next book. You're not. It has been amazing. Thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. As I said, so glad that, uh, that our paths have crossed and I, uh, I don't think it's the last time. I think we've uh, we've got more fun ahead of us, and I can't wait until the next time we get to to get to hang out. I can't either, and you have an open invitation. Come on out. We'll do We'd it. We'd love to have you come out and visit us here at the farm. Now, we do have a three-day rule. After three days, you're no longer a visitor. We will put you to work. That's fair. I'll be out in two. <laughs> All right. Remember, eat your veggies. Thank you. Thank you, Farmer. With the barbecue, right? That's right. And thanks, everyone, for joining us here on this episode of the May the Smoke Be With You podcast. Thanks for listening to the May the Smoke Be With You podcast with Joe Levitt.